Well, hello, and uh, welcome to the CSF April monthly podcast. Now, this month, two papers have been uploaded to the CSF website, but today I'm going to review those for you. And you can find the detailed slide set for these papers on the CSF website if you want to look for those later. Now, the first paper I want to highlight is uh, a letter investigating the safety of baricitinib treatment in patients with select comorbidities. First author here, uh, Bernard Combe from uh, Montpellier in France, a very experienced clinical trialist. And the background here, well, it's a post hoc analysis and it's investigating the effect uh, of select comorbidities on the efficacy and safety of baricitinib four milligrams in patients with moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis who'd had an inadequate response to uh, CSD MARDs. And the comorbidities of interest, well, I think they're pretty important for all of us in, in routine clinical practice, depression, osteoporosis, hepatic disorders, cardiovascular disorders, and pulmonary disorders. And this was data derived from placebo-controlled periods only of five baricitinib studies, uh, and they were pooled for the four milligram dose group. Uh, there's additional data for all baricitinib-treated patients with a median exposure of around two years included from an ongoing open-label long-term extension study with patients from phase two and phase three studies included. Uh, the efficacy outcomes were evaluated at week 12 compared with placebo. And the interaction of comorbidity by treatment was analysed using logistic regression or analysis of covariance. Uh, safety observations up to week 16 versus placebo and during the long-term extension were summarised by the MEDRA preferred terms approach. So you'll, you'll hear very familiar terminology here uh, that you would hear when you're reporting clinical trials, for example. So what were the key results? Well, response to baricitinib compared to placebo was similar between patients with or without comorbidity, except for numerically lower response rates for patients with comorbid depression. The, we don't know whether that's an impact of the behaviour of outcome measures in that group or whether it is truly an interaction with, uh, with, with jack inhibition in people who have other depressive pathways that are, are activated. There were similar proportions of patients experienced more than or equal to one treatment emergent adverse event between baricitinib and placebo groups across the comorbidity subgroups. Uh, SAEs and discontinuation rates with or without each comorbidity were, uh, comorbidity were similar to overall rates. And for the safety outcomes at week 16, lower numerical differences were observed between patients with depression and higher rates were noted in patients with osteoporosis and pulmonary disorders compared with patients without these comorbidities. Now, the incidence of uh, treatment emergent adverse events, SAEs, discontinuations and deaths were similar between patients with or without comorbidity for the two-year long-term extension study. And exposure adjusted incidence rate for the LTE patients were lower for all safety outcomes compared to the placebo controlled periods. Well, what do we conclude from this? Well, regardless of presence or absence of select comorbidities, similar efficacy and safety in RA patients were seen during the placebo controlled and indeed the long-term extension observation periods for baricitinib at four milligrams. There doesn't seem to be a trend for increased risk of safety events related to comorbidities found across the subgroups for baricitinib during up to two years of exposure. But I think it's really important to remember that these are still relatively short exposure times and a relatively modest number of patients. And we will need to look at further studies with uh, a greater degree of insight. And also the 
important to remember that clinical trial entry very often is precluded by having significant comorbidities. So if a comorbidity is a really challenging problem for a patient, we're unlikely to put them into clinical trials. So we're going to have to go into the real world to properly understand where to go next with this question. But it's a, it's a helpful paper in this regard. Now, the second uh, study this month examines the incidence of infections with tofacitinib treatment. And first author here is um, Dr. Zoya Zhang from the affiliated hospital of Nanjing University Medical School in China. Relevant background here, well, uh, we, we know that people with rheumatoid arthritis are at increased risk of tuberculosis and indeed other infections. And the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs that we use to treat our patients can also in turn increase the risk of infections. Uh, they, they have that as a primary mode of action. They're immunomodulatory, sometimes immunosuppressive agents. Uh, we have seen, therefore, a whole range of infectious events, including, for example, tuberculosis, hepatitis B, herpes zoster. Uh, the, the mechanisms whereby tofacitinib could increase the risk of infections is not entirely clear. Uh, we, we understand, of course, that it's an immune suppressive agent, and we do understand a fair bit about the cytokine pathways that are inhibited by tofacitinib. But nevertheless, uh, greater granularity and clinical details uh, and, and mechanism would be always very helpful. Now, this is a review that summarizes the prevalence of TB, Hep B, and herpes zoster infections reported in tofacitinib treated RA patients with a focus on the issues especially relevant in the Asian setting. And we have seen this across the board that different populations will throw up different potential risks of adverse events for any given mode of action. Uh, now, Turning first to tuberculous infections, the rate of latent TB infection reactivation is possibly increased in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, the higher background prevalence and risk of exposure to active TB in Asia suggests that country-specific guidelines for detecting and managing latent TB are going to be needed. Uh, an integrated analysis of global data from phase one to three and long-term extension studies involving patients treated for 8.5 years with tofacitinib, uh, tofacitinib found an overall TB incidence rate of 0.2 per 100 patient years. And this is actually consistent with the range reported for clinical trials of biologic DMARDs, which just to refresh your memory, lie somewhere between 0.04 and 2.5 events per 100 patient years. Now, for hepatitis B infections, uh, clinical trials of tofacitinib excluded patients with chronic HPV infection, so the data uh, available are really rather sparse indeed. Uh, a retrospective study in Taiwan found that it occurred, uh, that is, HPV reactivation occurred in 1.7% of patients consistent with rates reported for other DMARDs. Um, guidelines recommend screening patients for HPV infection prior to starting treatment with immunosuppressive therapies, including people with rheumatic diseases receiving biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs. So I think the, the, the watchword here is caution, screen, and make considered and uh, judicious decisions thereafter in patients who are H H um, hepatitis B positive thereafter. Now, what about herpes zoster infections? Well, again, uh, we, we are now reasonably familiar with the notion that uh, zoster rates are increased in patients receiving tofacitinib, and this may be particularly the case in Asian patients. 
the underlying mechanism for this is still not entirely clear. Uh, this particular study reported uh, several potentially interesting observations in a pooled analysis of phase two, three and long-term extension studies. There was an increase in herpes zoster observed with tofacitinib compared with placebo. Uh, the incidence was higher with tofacitinib than with biologic DMARDs by approximately twofold or thereabouts. However, cases of zoster seen with tofacitinib were generally not complicated and seemed to respond to antiviral treatment. So summarising all of the, uh, uh, the, the data that, that uh, appear in this article, the instance rate of TB was higher with tofacitinib 10 milligrams BD compared with 5 milligrams. That's a 0.3 as opposed to 0.08 per 100 patient year event. Uh, in Asia, the instance rate for herpes zoster is higher compared to other regions, and that's especially so in Japan and Korea. Uh, most cases of TB during the tofacitinib studies occurred in regions with a high background rate, and it was still a comparatively rare uh, event in areas with a lower intermediate background rate. So taking all of this, uh, the, the top line for you, uh, tofacitinib was shown to be generally safe and effective therapeutic in people with RA. There is evidence of higher rates of zoster with tofacitinib compared with biologic DMARDs. These cases seem to be manageable with appropriate uh, prophylaxis and antiviral treatment. We do need to understand better what the impact of vaccination is going to be. It's still not entirely clear, in fact, that vaccination does make a difference to the likelihood of developing a zoster infection upon commencing a JAK inhibitor. More work required there. Uh, the risk of TB and uh, hepatitis B reactivation does appear to be similar uh, to that experience with biologic DMARDs, although again, these are relatively small numbers. And we should be cognizant that in different regions, there are different background rates of TB and hepatitis B. And for that reason, country-specific or region-specific strategies for screening and managing infections in people undergoing treatment with uh, any of the, the DMARD modes of action would seem to be appropriate. And don't forget, of course, that all of the content that I've discussed in this podcast is available in much more detailed slide format in the publications section at sidekindsignaling.com. It's a fantastic resource. Go there, take the slides, read them, learn for your own purposes and disseminate so that we can all learn together. And please also subscribe to our podcast channel. Let us know what you think by reviewing our podcast. And as ever, thanks ever so much for listening. I hope that these podcasts are really helpful to you in your clinical practice. And I look forward to talking with you again.